The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is sponsored by UnityVillage.org. Songwriter Karen Drucker returns to Unity Village with A Woman's Time Out Retreat, September 19th to 22nd. Learn more at UnityVillage.org forward slash events calendar. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. I started my career in fashion. I went to fashion school in London and then worked in advertising at Harsfeld's, the late legendary women and children's specialty store in Kansas City. Even then, it seemed to me that there was more to fashion than utilitarianism, ego, and even aesthetics. It seemed that the choices we made every day about what to wear resulted in how we clothed our bodies, but also revealed quite a bit about what we thought of ourselves and what was important to us. Our topic today is fashion, more precisely, the unimaginably beautiful and important new book, Fashion Animals, and its author, Brave Gentleman Designer, Joshua Catcher. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Program. I am your host, Victoria Moran, and it's always extra special to me to have on the program someone I know personally and someone whom I personally know is changing the world for the very much better. Joshua Catcher is a fashion designer, author, activist, and educator who's taught at Parsons the New School and LIM College, and who's lectured on sustainable and ethical fashion at Princeton, the University of Pennsylvania, the American University of Paris, Fashion Institute of Technology, New York University, and more. Hatcher began writing about ethical fashion in 2008 when he founded the Discerning Brute, then launched the first ethically made menswear fashion brand, Brave Gentleman, in 2010. Thatcher was awarded menswear brand of the year and most influential designer by PETA. He was a contributor to HuffPost Style. He's appeared on the cover of Vegan Good Life magazine. He's been interviewed on major networks and his clothes have been worn by Alan Cumming and Benedict Cumberbach. Welcome to the program, Joshua Catcher. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I can't tell you how long I have waited to have you on the show a second time because we've waited for this amazing book to come out. You know, sometimes people say to me, I love your show, but it makes me buy too many books. Well, then you can hate me this time because this one you have to have. Even if you think you're not into fashion, Joshua, what do you say to people who say fashion? That's not anything that interests me. Fashion is something that is 
for anyone. And I think it's especially for people who don't think it applies to them, because those are the people who really need to read this book. And if you are somebody who's saying that to yourself, as long as you get dressed in the morning every day, you're involved in the fashion system. And so for somebody who's vegan, for somebody who's very much into the idea of the simple life, for somebody who believes that the system out there is causing all of the animal exploitation and so many problems in the world, what do you say to them? I think that the fashion system is something that, like any system, it really depends on who's in control and, and what the objectives are and who are the forces behind it. And fashion can be extremely harmful and, uh, and damaging to animals and the environment and other people, but it, it also can be something that does good in the world. And that's what we're trying to change it into being. Yeah. So tell us your story, Joshua. How did you go from being a young man looking at all sorts of careers in the world to honing in on this one? Well, I originally was not somebody who would ever have thought that fashion was for me. And it, looking back, I'm kind of surprised that um, I got into fashion. It, it, it was something that I always saw as silly and frivolous and about vanity and therefore something that I should um, overlook or uh, work to overcome. And it wasn't until I started researching theories around uh, identity and art and uh, symbolism that I realized that fashion was a really important way of creating identity and a really powerful tool for communicating how we want to be perceived in the world, how we view ourselves. And also it really highlights and uncovers this disconnect that we have with the things that are made versus how we want to perceive those things. Um, the, the disconnect between the way uh, a jacket or a coat has been made and who made it and where it was made and of, of whom it's made versus what we hope that jacket represents to our identity. And often those two things are, have very little to do with each other. And that's really a problem. So I got into fashion because as an activist and as somebody who is very interested in bringing, bringing about change in the world, I thought that this was a really uh, crucial place to do that. And um, in, in regards to uh, um, making it something that is more accessible to everyone, that, that's really what I'm hoping to do with the book. I, I think that the book um, uses some really interesting methods and, and visuals to get people caught up to speed on why fashion is something worth looking at as I did. Well, this book is amazing. Certainly for anybody who is vegan, even if they buy all their clothes at Goodwill, and absolutely for anybody who is not vegan, who has an interest in fashion, 
or for anybody who has an interest in history. To me, this is one of the most eye-opening aspects of this wonderful book and of your incredible presentations. You have been generous enough to, in your busy schedule, come four or five times a year to teach at Main Street Vegan Academy for the past seven years. And I've watched your presentation evolve over this time. I have no idea where you get your skills of research that you can come up with all of these historical connections about the use of fashion and animals. Can you give us a little historical perspective? Yes, um, the history is one of the most fascinating aspects of this book. And it's really, it's a little bit of a challenge to categorize the book because it is a history book, but it is also a critical theory. And it's also an art book. Um, the, the images are, are sometimes beautiful and haunting, and some of them are upsetting. But the, the photography throughout the book is Joanne MacArthur's, who um, is behind We Animals, which is an amazing resource and archive. Um, but as far as the history goes, I went to archives at the Fashion Institute of Technology. I went to the archives at Parsons. I used online databases throughout the world um, looking for rare images and rare art. And I ended up collecting a lot of these images. So I own um, a lot of the, I don't know, either the originals or, or at least prints, actual physical prints of some of these images that appear in the book. And I, the more that I did research, the more I was just shocked and and I became almost obsessed with this pursuit of finding more and more of this evidence. I thought I was uncovering and solving some sort of mystery. And I can't tell you, it, uh, it, it, did, become, it did become an obsession, I think, um, during the process of writing the book. But I think for a project like this, I think I had to become a little bit obsessed in order to really get it done and, and do a thorough job because it's such a broad topic. Um, some of the, I'll give you one story. Um, there, there was a bird in New Zealand that had been driven to extinction, and the bird is the huia, and it's spelled H-U-I-A. And I had read that the the Duke of Cornwall visited New Zealand in the early 1900s and was given a feather to put in his hat. And a photograph was taken of him wearing this feather in his hat. And because of that photograph, the bird was driven to extinction within just a few years. I think it was four or five years that the bird was gone because the demand for that feather that came about because people saw that photograph in the news in the newspaper. Um, I wanted I wanted to put that photo in the book. And I, it took me about four years to track it down. But I finally found it. So. You, you can see how important a historical image can be rather than just writing about it, actually seeing it um, and being able to, to witness how something like that could drive an animal to extinction, um, I think is pretty, pretty shocking. Mm. Well, let's go back, not into antiquity, although you cover some of that in, in the book as well, but let's go back into the 1800s, kind of um, somewhat recent history. People did see animals differently at that time. Was that when animals really came in as fashion pieces and not just um, skins that might keep somebody warm? Well, the, the history of using animals as decorative elements in 
in body coverings is as old as humanity. And um, but but the time where fashion became what we know as fashion today, that really started in the Elizabethan court in the Middle Ages. But then it wasn't until about the Industrial Revolution where you start to see these items being scaled up in production and the demand for them growing to these huge numbers. And then the ability with all of our new technology, these new factories and transportation and trains and railroads and steamboats and the ability to go out into the world and kill these massive numbers of animals and bring their skins and pelts and feathers and hairs back to major urban centers and to quickly turn them into um, consumable objects that are that have a sameness to them and to then disseminate that into the general public through um, through consumerism that really started happening yeah in 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 the, the mid mid to late 1800s and the impact was immediate so when I look at some of these images from that time period they're much more, I guess I want to say, in your face than nowadays. And I understand in very recent history, so many of, of the big designers have turned away from fur. But in the past 10 years, you'd see fur ads, you'd see the model holding a kitten and wearing a fur, but you wouldn't see some of these really even bloody images that were used in advertising from earlier eras. What yes. was going on in people's heads at that time? Well, there's a few forces at play during that time. Um, one of the major forces that I that I think was informing that perspective was this idea that animals were robots and that they were just automaton and that they were here for us and that all of nature was here for our use and for uh, not only was it here for our use, but it was an infinite supply that nature would perpetually replenish itself indefinitely and infinitely. And that, that view of nature as this perfect thing that can't be broken really penetrated the, um, the worldview of most, uh, at least in, in, you know, the Western world, um, that, that was the view of nature overwhelmingly, that it was just this stockpile of resources that could never be um, tired. And the other thing that was at play during this time um, was the, the view that animals um, didn't really have a sense. I mentioned that they were, you know, people saw them as these robots. But that um, that animals could have an experience of pain, a valid experience of pain or anguish or um, an emotional life or a social life. That was not even uh, close to being something that the scientific community had agreed upon yet. So I think um, I think those two things combined resulted in um, some of these images of animals being um, put in situations that we would probably find more appalling today. But at the same time, it was still a fantasized and fictionalized version of the killing process or the hunting process. It was still um, something that they, wouldn't sh they would never show the actual, the real 
killing and confining and trapping and turning of animals into objects, but they might show something that would get people excited about adventure and travel and exotic you know, uh, other places that we had never been before. This was the age of exploration during this time. So selling people access to these far off places via the animal, this these strange creatures who they'd never seen before and, and the excitement of being able to have a piece of that, I think was the main driving factor behind these window displays full of taxidermy and hunting scenes or a Vogue cover that has a, a polar bear being speared to death, bleeding out of his face. Um, th those are things you wouldn't see today, but they still are, they still are fictional. Hmm. Now you mentioned Vogue, which is fascinating to me because I started being interested in fashion in the late 1960s, I was a teenager, but I'd already uh, gone to London to go to fashion school. And I remember the, the big uh, spread of we're no longer going to have fur in Vogue magazine. There were a lot of celebrities saying we oppose fur. And that died away eventually. And then in the 90s, it kind of resurfaced and then it died away again. And yet I've learned in your book and, and in your lecture that there was a time that Vogue actually had an animal welfare column. Yes, yes. There was a column that I discovered doing my research that I don't think anyone else has really written about. Um, I, I extensively looked for other academic writing on this column. And I think it was overlooked because animals are often overlooked in fashion. And, you know, fashion isn't taken seriously very often in the academy or in legislation. And then on top of it, animals are not either. So the combination of the two um, is something that people really don't take seriously. So I found this column that was from 1900 to 1910. And it was written by Josephine Redding, who was the original Vogue editor. She named Vogue Vogue. And this was her project. And she ended up, she was a big animal advocate. And what they spoke about in this column was so shocking to me that it was so ahead of its time. I mean, what did you think? What were some of the topics that you were surprised to see them talking about? Well, they talked about fur. They, they talked about, I think they talked about the seal hunt. They talked about things that they were actually advertising and, and that actually, if people took it seriously, were going to hurt the business of their advertisers. Yes. And they, not only that, but they were also talking about the connection between meat eating and cancer. And they were talking about the cruelty of dog fighting and um, and the, the horse carriage cruelty and uh, animal transportation cruelty when animals are being transported between, you know, the stockyard and the slaughterhouse. They talked about everything that we think is a contemporary issue in animal advocacy today, they had a mention of it in vogue during this decade of 1900 to 1910. And I fantasize about this world where that column was not gotten rid of. Like what would, vogue, what would vogue be today? They would be a, a world leader in animal advocacy. Yeah, they would indeed. So what happened? Why did it stop? Well, I couldn't, find a definite answer as to why it stopped, but I can make an educated guess. And what happened was in 1910, the same year that the column disappeared, was that Condé Nast acquired the magazine. 
And Condé Nast turned the magazine into a, um, a tool for advertisers to use. And so a column that was contradicting what the advertisers were selling was probably something that they would have been very concerned about. So I suspect that it was that it was cut off by Condé Nast in the acquisition, and that it was some, it was part of the acquisition deal. Mm. But I'm still looking, I'm still looking for hard evidence um, as to exactly what happened. I, I don't know if anybody made a record of the uh, the end of this column or if it just kind of quietly disappeared. So what about more recent history? Tell us uh, what happened in the '90s. Well. Um, in the 90s, there, there was a really big anti-fur movement, and there was a lot of excitement around getting models and designers. And, you know, at the, at the time, supermodels were um, spokes, spokeswomen for the fashion industry. And uh, a lot of the top supermodels had really taken the hard stand on fur. And um, it was it seems to be an era that was very motivated towards ethical fashion and the anti-fur movement was very ahead of its time in that because there was not much else going on in the 90s in in a call for ethical fashion other than um, a very general concern about sweatshops and um so i think that there's a few reasons it didn't work the, the anti-fur movement didn't work in the 90s. But what I discovered was that the fur industry really um, went in hard against animal rights activists, uh, especially anti-fur activists. They hired lobbyists and they paid for PR and they really prepared and did uh, did such a good job that they ended up being able to push back the anti-fur movement quite significantly for many years. And they had sent out letters to um, all. Uh, there, there was a fur a fur industry um, insider newsletter called Fur Age, and I discovered doing my research that they had uh, this top down agenda to make the statement that fur is back every year. And to send that out to new and emerging fashion journalists so that it would constantly feel like fur is back, fur is back, fur is back every season. And they that was very successful for them. They did a really good job of getting these journalists to do their dirty work. But um, I found the, the evidence of exactly where it started, and uh, it feels very nefarious that it happened. Um, and that kind of, I think, was the, the defining uh, the defining. 90s anti-fur um, moment was this this battle between the anti-fur activists and then the fur industry really coming in hard from a, a more um, PR and a journalist angle. Mm. So now we're seeing so many designers who have cut out fur. It almost seems that that fur shouldn't exist anymore, except I still see it on people almost every day in the wintertime. So what's happening now, and what about the fur industry going into schools and trying to get young designers to support fur? Well, the fur industry, like many other industries, they want to remain relevant, and they, and they want to have fresh talent. 
And they do that in a number of ways. And one of the ways that the fur industry does this is they, they go into fashion schools and sometimes um, fashion high schools. There's a fashion high school here in New York. And they offer students incentives and money and training and travel. And they, as long as these students learn to work with fur and, and include it in their collections and therefore keep it relevant, as long as there's young designers who are leaving and graduating school and fur has become part of their repertoire, that is what, that is how the fur industry survives and stays relevant. And, um, and I believe that this is something that is very dangerous and, um, and, and is something that is very dishonest. We, when I was teaching at Parsons, um, we, we actually banned the fur industry from being able to do that in the school. Um, there's no reason why uh, an industry should be able to bribe students, um, especially when it's such an awful industry that is having laws passed all over the world to ban it. Um, and the brands are just coming out of the woodwork to 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 commit to fur-free policies. Just in the last few years, we had Armani, Hugo Boss, um, Gucci, Michael Kors, Furla, Versace, Donna Karen, Burberry, Diane von Furstenberg, Coach, Gautier, and I, there's probably a few more that I'm forgetting to mention, but all of these major, major brands are finally saying we don't we don't need fur anymore. And in fact, there is technology that makes these superior materials that are better than fur, that outperform it, that are more sustainable, that are more beautiful, and that cost less to, to work with. Um, and that is good news for the animals and it's good news for innovation in fashion. And it's something that I think we need more of. And we're also seeing a lot of legislation being passed. Just over the last few months, um, there's uh, there's some legislation that's up in California to ban fur statewide. And this is a state that is in the process of, you know, banning fur in Los Angeles and banning fur. They've already banned fur in West Hollywood and Berkeley. And there are efforts across the United States and across the world um, to ban fur from cities, from countries, from schools and within companies. Oh, that's amazing. It, it really is the new smoking, I think. Uh, go outside to smoke, go outside to wear your fur coat or not have it at all. So I know we've talked a lot in this segment about fur. In the next segment, I do want to get into some of the other issues and also some of these amazing future fabrics that are changing this industry for the morality, environmentalism, and good living all around and great fashion too everybody stay with us we'll be back after these messages thanks for joining us this is unity online radio the voice of an awakening world. Unity Online Radio is bringing the message of unity to thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. 
If you enjoy our programming, we invite you to support it by visiting unityonlineradio.org and clicking on Donate Now. Help us continue to provide inspiring content to everyone. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Eric Butterworth, taken from the live lecture, A Course in Practical Metaphysics. Healing is the experience in our life of coming out of the darkness into the light, getting out of the confusion of human consciousness into the allness which is always present. But the allness of infinite life is present even within the illness. So God is not a healer. He doesn't look down upon you and say, well, you're sick, but you're a good person and I like you very much, so I'm going to take this illness away from you. God doesn't take illness away from anybody, nor does God put illness into anyone, which belies a lot of traditional religious thought, too. We talk about, well, suffered to be so, it's God's will, and I guess it's my place to accept it. The will of God must always be the ceaseless longing of the Creator to express itself in that which has created. So it's a constancy, it's a force, which is ever seeking to press itself out into visibility as life, as wholeness, as success. To find out more about Eric Butterworth, visit unity.org. Discover the path to wealth with Mae McCarthy, May 17th to 19th at the Art of Living Retreat Center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. Mae will share her seven-step daily practice to achieve goals in every area of your life, including your finances, career, and relationships. A best-selling author, angel investor, and entrepreneur, Mae has been building highly successful businesses for over 35 years. You can achieve your dreams. Go to artoflivingretreatcenter.org to find out more. Discover Unity Village, and you'll find a peaceful oasis just 15 miles from downtown Kansas City, Missouri. If you're doing business in the area or looking for the perfect place for your retreat or conference, check out all that Unity Village has to offer. With 1,200 wooded acres, a beautiful nature trail, award-winning rose garden, golf course, and newly redesigned hotel and conference center, Unity Village has everything you need for that perfect event. Go to unityvillage.org to find out more. Get inspired with Temple Hayes and the Intentional Spirit, Wednesday at 1 p.m. Central here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Each week, Temple shares tools and practices to help you thrive in the most challenging times. Temple also welcomes fascinating guests who share their stories and struggles on the spiritual path. Follow Temple on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date with the show. Become an Intentional Spirit with Temple Hayes here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan program. If you have not visited my website ever or lately, do take a look at MainStreetVegan.net. We have lots of wonderful things going on over there. And do click on the link that says Film so you can find out about screenings of the beautiful new film, A Prayer for Compassion. 
We're talking with Joshua Catcher, a wonderful fashion designer, activist, and somebody that I admire so much. You know, Joshua, I always say I have an amazing daughter. I have two terrific bonus children, my husband's daughter and son. But if I could claim another son, it would be you. And I know you have fabulous parents. You don't need any more. But I'm just so proud of you. And I'm so excited about what you're doing and what you're going to do. And I wanted to share with you, because I think this would be meaningful to you as a designer and a person in fashion, that at that premiere of A Prayer for Compassion, I was lent a gown by a designer, which I have to tell you made me feel like everybody gets 15 minutes of feeling like Meryl Streep, and that was mine. So I had this incredible dress from Pilush, and the top of it was all beaded in this amazing rose. I think it weighed 15 pounds. <laughs> it was a lot to carry around. And the bottom was faux fur, and it had this wonderful faux kind of like Persian lamb sort of, of um, shrug. In all honesty, with that and with my Gunas bag, fabulous clutch called About Last Night, I really did feel like a million dollars, not just because of how I looked, but because I knew what that meant. It meant that you can really do the red carpet thing. You can have all the glitz and all the glam and all the quality in a way that's cruelty-free, environmentally sound, it's just so exciting. Yes. It, the, the innovations that are happening are outpacing anything that we could do with animal fabrics. And it really is something that's going to be obsolete. And I, I truly believe that the next industrial revolution is just around the corner and it's happening in the realm of um, bio biofabrication, um, bioprinting, bioplastics, everything bio. And the ability to grow materials, whether we're growing it from mushrooms or whether we're growing it from um, proteins in the laboratory, we are about to embark upon a new way of making everything and to be able to infinitely customize it and to be able to design it to our specifications without having to confine or kill anyone. And I think that that is something that feels utopian almost. The ability to have materials that have performance and design properties that are so much so far superior to anything that we have today especially animal materials which i think are very limited in what they can do um not to mention you know the the incredible ethical concerns that that come along with um trapping or farming um these beings um there there are small companies startups and um and uh accelerators and small um biotech companies that are are starting to be able to make these materials whether it's growing silk in the laboratory out of protein um whether it's using mushrooms to create leather um, whether it's using pineapple to make felt or orange orange peels to make um, a, a cashmere-like fiber, there is just endless innovation. And I think that what 
industries like the leather industry and the wool industry and the fur industry, what they like to do is market themselves and fight these innovations as something that's scary and something that's going to um, replace this traditional way of doing things. And all we have to do is look very briefly into history to see the innumerable examples of things that people defended that we now view as horrible. And I believe that this is this is one of those next things that's coming up. Mm, so true and so exciting. So when we look, Joshua, at what's still going on, tell us about some of these other industries. I know we've talked about fur, but something that I learned from you is about the leather industry. As a, a young vegetarian, I just believed leather is a byproduct of the beef industry. So I'm not going to purchase it because I don't eat meat, but someone who eats meat probably wouldn't have any ethical qualm about leather. But that was really wrong. Give us the leather story. Well, leather, I think, gets a pass from people exactly for that reason of what you're saying, is that people think that it's just making use of waste that, you know, it's terrible, these animals are being killed, but at the least we can do is use all, all their parts. And, and, um, and in doing that, at least they, you know, won't have died in vain. That's, I think, what a lot of the general public believes about leather. And it couldn't be further from the truth. The leather industry is not only one of the most destructive materials on the planet, the, the tanning process, the um, and the amount of resources it takes to to, to raise these livestock, um, it's just staggering. But leather can't really be viewed as a byproduct because it's so economically important to the slaughter industries. It really represents the most significant economic aspect of that industry, more so than meat. Meat is subsidized and it's not always that valuable, whereas leather has a huge markup and you can make a lot of money selling skins. So from an economic standpoint, we can't really view leather as this byproduct that's making use of waste. We have to view it as the primary product or at least a co-product um, or a meat subsidy because they make that's where they make the big bucks is selling selling the skins and that's something i think that contradicts what a lot of people think they know about fashion mm. and something else that's very shocking to people is that the largest producer of leather correct me if i'm wrong is a country that we think of as vegetarian and that's india yes <laughs> yes absolutely a country that the west has sort of romanticized and stereotyped as being these cow worshipers um, it actually is a place where a huge number of um, a huge portion of the, the leather in the world. I think, like I think you're right, the majority of leather in the world, especially cheap leather, is is produced there, and it's it's made in illegal tanneries where there's no uh, enforcement of labor or environmental standards, uh, and often. Um, they have to slaughter the cows outside of the um, borders of the country and they have to bring them to places where it's legal to slaughter them. And often that that journey for the cows is an additional blow to uh, to an additional you know harm that happens to them. It's, uh, it's it could be an excruciating journey. Um, 
the entire the entire leather process from from the birth of the cow through the through the uh, delivery of the good to the market is just riddled with problems and uh, and ethical dilemmas and um, I mean actually I don't think it's a dilemma for for <laughs> once you know about it it's no longer a dilemma but um, it's just a really dirty and gross and horrible industry that puts out these products that are viewed as so beautiful and valuable and uh, representative of status and luxury and power and and quality and authenticity when we think of leather we think of those words the, the leather industry has put a lot of money into owning words like authentic and real and genuine and that's just marketing that that doesn't mean anything it has no reflection upon uh, even the durability of leather is not something that can really be truly uh, marketed anymore at least uh, quality has gone down significantly in the leather industry um, and there are materials that are stronger and that are better and that are softer and that uh, can outperform it so it really is just about our our idea of who we want to be when wearing leather and the leather industry really preying upon that. Mm. So Joshua, in this amazing book, which is truly an art book, it's a coffee table book. It's just, I can't even describe to you. Every now and then, maybe once a year, every two years, I so wish that this were a TV show, even though I couldn't be sitting in this room without makeup on doing this show <laughs> the way I do it. <laughs> but it would be so wonderful whenever we're talking about visuals to be able to give the visuals. So the way that you can do that is to get yourself over to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever you buy books and look at this amazing book, Fashion Animals by Joshua Catcher. There are beautiful images, there are shocking images, there are astounding images. But I have to say, Joshua, that even though I am an animal rights activist, that is my purpose in this world, Joanne MacArthur's photographs haunt me and move me and motivate me. And yet I have to say that probably the most moving photograph in Fashion Animals is this one of two little boys in a vat of something awful in a tannery in India. Can you make the human rights connection here? Absolutely. The, the use of animals in fashion is just one aspect of this very broad problem. And this broad problem, I, I like to view fashion as an industry that's representative of a lot of industries um, in the world. And it's something that is an industrial complex, and it is a global industrial complex. And within that industry, animals are but one victim of this, of this system. And there are people who are being being subjected to and treated horribly, whether it's um, child slaves who are who are picking cotton um, in Uzbekistan, or whether it's uh, ch child tannery workers in India and Bangladesh um, who are working in liming baths and chemical uh, chemical dyeing baths and tanning tanning facilities with no protective equipment and. This image that you're talking about, it haunts me too, because I, I just think about 
I think about the, the two extremes. I think about the extreme of right now in the world, there is a child inside of a bath of chemicals scraping hair out of follicles so that somewhere in New York, somewhere in London, somewhere in Paris, somewhere in Los Angeles, somebody can go into a little boutique and buy a little pink purse that looks cute and pretty and carry that around and feel good about themselves that they bought something for themselves that looks so nice. And that that reality of the story behind that bag, that the prettiness hides such an ugliness. And that that's the story that we are willing to listen to, most of us, it, when we buy something. We only want to hear about the aesthetics. We only want to hear about how this is going to flatter our egos. And we don't want to know the honest, true story about how that was made, whose body it's made from, and whose other bodies had to endure abuse in order to make that product. Mm -hmm. And I think that when people really make that connection, we can't look at these garments as being beautiful anymore when it came from such an ugly place. Well, it's the quotation that you have in the book from Tolstoy, what a strange illusion it is to suppose that beauty is goodness. Yes, that, that I think applies to the fashion industry so profoundly. And um, the, the fashion industry is uh, an industry of beautiful objects and beautiful people. And we tend to allow that beauty to overwhelm us and to seduce us into willingly looking the other way or forgetting or avoiding the truth about how things are made. And I think that that is a real, real tragedy. It is indeed. And what about, Joshua, the environmental argument? We hear it, as you said, from the fur industry, but I hear it from even people who are dietary vegans. Well, I still wear leather shoes because I don't want to wear, everybody thinks non-leather shoes are plastic. They're stuck back in 1970, and most of them weren't born in 1970. Yeah. But how can we get across this idea? Leather is not some natural product. What what happens? What what is, has to go on for leather, for shoes and bags and belts and jackets to actually be made? Well, first and foremost, leather and wool are livestock products, and they're coming from the livestock industry. And we already know the impacts of the livestock industry when we look at things like greenhouse gas emissions, climate change, ocean dead zones, fisheries depletion, species extinction, deforestation, world hunger, food safety. It, all of these things are impacted by animal agriculture. And just because you have a, a quote unquote natural fiber, I mean, I don't really know what's natural about these genetically modified domesticated animals who we've bred, you know, and bred them to be these monstrosities. But um, these are considered natural fibers because they are protein fibers and because they are supposedly biodegradable. And I think that that is such a misnomer because what it takes to produce leather now, as we discussed, leather is this this primary economic product. So if a primary economic product of an industry that is known to be a top contributor to the worst environmental problems, that, that can't be a sustainable product. 
natural leather is not a real thing in the context of at least the modern fashion industry. And, um, and wool also, you're talking about a billion sheep on the planet. And each one of those animals is a little methane factory and methane has 20 times the global warming potential as carbon. So when you have a billion sheep on the planet and they're all consuming land and water and energy, and then they're giving off this methane that's so powerful as a greenhouse gas, you're talking about a major contribution to global warming. And you're also talking about in both of these industries, major contributions to animal extinctions and biodiversity loss. Where are we putting all of these animals? These billions of livestock have to be, they have to be somewhere. We're displacing real wild nature and we're displacing wild animal species and driving them to extinction in order to have these leather garments and these mm -hmm. wool garments. Um, so it is not at all a sustainable material. And on the other hand, we have man-made materials. And they and the, the history of man-made materials is not perfect. And it's not always great for the environment or beautiful. But what we do have is the imperative and the motivation now and the know-how to make the most exciting and bounding advancements in sustainable synthetics. And synthetics doesn't mean... I think that word is is scary to a lot of people. Synthetic, man-made. They imagine, you know, this uh, Dr. Frankenstein in the laboratory, or you know, an, a crazy uh, a crazy scientist, you know, hunched over bubbling cauldrons. It's um, uh, synthetic can be synthetic biology. It can be biological materials, protein materials that are synthesized, and we have the ability, as as we discussed earlier, to make these completely. Um, inspired and um, uh, revolutionary materials. And, and they're going to make animal materials obsolete. They're going to be far more sustainable. We have bioplastics now. I was just reading an article about Primaloft, which is an insulation as an alternative to down. And Primaloft started off as a standard synthetic company. Then they started making recycled Primaloft. Now they're making bio-based Primaloft where not only is it biodegradable, but it's also infinitely recyclable. So you get the, be the best of both worlds. And that's how a, a high-tech company can replace the down industry in a sustainable way and in a way that's leading with innovation and, and, and a pioneer in these new biofibers that are going to, I think, replace all polyester. That is so exciting. Now, how can we get so-called vegan fashion or cruelty-free fashion to reach the level in people's minds of any kind of, of great fashion. I know in the book, you have among your many historical artifacts that you share with us here, you show some ads for animal-free fashion from 1896 to 1918. We see them advertised first substitutes for humanitarians and humana footwear. So then a little bit like now, it's like, well, those people who care about those things, we're gonna make this for them, but it's not the norm. It's not right. for everybody. How's that gonna change? I think it's gonna change. It has to, we have to lead with design. We have to stop looking at sustainable and vegan fashion as something that's for vegans and environmentalists. This is 
a new standard that I think has to happen at a systems level. And maybe it has to happen in a way that the consumer doesn't really even need to be making the decision. Maybe it just happens at such a, a systems level that these base ingredients and um, the, these things that we're using to make all of our garments are just replaced. And, and maybe, the, maybe the consumer doesn't even notice and doesn't have to notice. Why should we have to undo this, this indoctrination that has been centuries old? Um, I think that's one angle is to just let's just replace the problematic materials at a systems level and keep making the same the stuff that looks the same. Why why should people have to sacrifice or change um, how they how they um, shop or how they want to be viewed? Um, that's one way. And, and I think another way to get it into the mainstream um, is to make it really exciting and sexy and cool. And there are designers out there who are doing it. But I think one mistake that a lot of um, sustainable and vegan designers make is being too much of a, of a do-gooder, goody-two-shoes, um, wholesome, um, using that. Those, those appeals and those aesthetics don't always work in the design world. And there's a, I write about that a lot in the book about why that doesn't work. Um, and, you know, I extensively go into these these seven observations about animals and fashion and how we view them and why they, you know, why we're so drawn to them and, and how psychology plays such a big role in our view of um, the materials that we want to surround ourselves and, and engulf ourselves inside of. Um, but. So I think that we have to really make make desirability something that is used more. Um, and then the other way, I think, is legislation. I think that we have to pass laws that ban these harmful, horrible materials and that not only do the, the banning side, but we should also be creating um, incentives for using the new innovative materials. So we need to have economic incentives for uh, emerging designers and emerging textile manufacturers and um, innovators who are going to be making this stuff. Why shouldn't we be offering the same kind of financial help that we give to people farming uh, animals that we are to people innovating these new things that are going to be um, completely revolutionizing the, the, the industries? Mm. So Joshua, let's talk for our last minute or two two young designers and, and young fashionistas. I see so much on, on YouTube and Instagram of these young people who don't seem to have a clue about even basic sustainability sweatshops and that kind of thing, much less vegan. Yeah. Where's that message getting lost? And what do you say to young people who are into fashion? The message is complicated, I think, which makes it easy to get lost. It's a, it, it feels as though it's a, a bit of a burden and consumers don't want to be burdened. Shopping is an emotional act. It's about being inspired and finding something that you like and, and feeling something and, and, and being overwhelmed by emotion or um, it, it is not going, going shopping for clothes is not necessarily rational. And I think that we're dealing with an issue that that requires rationality. So there's a bit of a there's a bit of a problem there. And I think that what we can do is create really simple, straightforward 
resources um, that explain what is vegan fashion, what is sustainable, what is cruelty-free, and um, and hopefully make it accessible to and exciting uh, and engaging for, for people like that to want to be part of it. Um, nobody wants to open a door if they know that behind that door is a horrifying image. So how do we make it something that is about inspiration and creativity and uh, being a visionary and being a leader and being um, being a, a trendsetter? Those, I think, are, are approaches to reach someone like that. And my message, my message to young people who um, who want to be involved in fashion, who want to be creative and express themselves through fashion is don't always buy into the marketing. When you, when you go out and buy the latest trendiest thing, when you go out and buy a Canada goose coat or a pair of Uggs, 20 seconds, (laughs) then you are doing the most conservative and commonplace thing. It's not original or innovative. Oh, bless you, Joshua Catcher. The book is Fashion Animals, the website, bravegentleman.com. Get the book, buy the clothes, know this young man. He's going to change the world and change your life. Thanks so much for listening. God bless you bunches and bunches. Eat your veggies. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.